this is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Trescott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 171 with Erica Gardis. Another special day in quarantine and also out of quarantine. The vibe is on. The spirits are high. I am feeling real good. And I just want to get right into this episode because this episode is about what true vulnerability is. I'm going to tell you something and it's not going to be very vulnerable because I'm going to call myself out before you hear it. So I am one step above you and making fun of myself. And by doing that and trying to have the upper hand, that really isn't very vulnerable. So I'm not being vulnerable when I tell you that one of my favorite parts is when I say this might come out jarbled and Erica corrects me without really correcting me, garbled. So I got that one wrong. So yeah, I garbled and jarbled and garbled it. Otherwise, this is a perfectly articulated episode. And thanks, really, to my guest. And I'm just so happy that I found this guest and that she was receptive to coming on. I think it is an encouragement to anyone out there that you can reach out to people. You can reach out to the people that you would want to hear from. And hey, you might get to talk to them. And your world can open up from there. Thanks for being here with us. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Well, hello. I am Erica Gardis. I am what I call an authenticity advocate. And I do that through speaking, writing, and coaching. And it's primarily about teaching people how to take all the experiences that they're having in their lives and really turn that inward in order to gain deeper awareness and clarity about who they are, what they want, and how they want to show up in this world. Because I really, truly believe that when we do that, we can live into our full range and experience greater confidence, more joy, and definitely more impact. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because it's my journey. I went from being an overachieving, insecure people pleaser uh, to having to go through a very long and difficult spiritual journey to get me to this place of really feeling totally confident and at home in my own skin. And I want to help other people go through that learning curve a little bit faster and Mm. be able to teach them what I've learned. Mm, A little bit faster. Mm -hmm. You know, what's so interesting is that about the overachieving, you called yourself insecure during that time, right? (laughs) In this world, it's almost like an arrogance about being so busy or having so much on their list to do. And I'm not sure that even the people that are overachieving identify themselves as insecure. Do you feel like you had a whisper within that that's what that really was, that you were like this imposter, that the moreness you were chasing was to fill what was missing within you? 
Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. And yes, I said that over and over and over in my journals. I've been journaling most of my life. And actually this weekend, my kids were at their dad's house. And so I had an opportunity to go back through journals for the last, I don't know, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the theme over and over and over on pages and years and experiences that all felt so different at the time, the consistent theme was no matter what I did, no matter who I became, it never felt like it was enough. And I was so insecure and I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. I just wanted to fit myself into a box, whatever box that was. And so I made myself into the person that people would be impressed by. And I did the things that would get me recognition and achievement. And I changed my physical form so that I could be more beautiful and desirable. And I starved myself and I drank too much and I binged and I purged and I did all of these things trying to make myself into the person I thought I was supposed to be because I felt so insecure. The thing that I felt over and over throughout my life is this hole, this like gaping hole in the pit of my stomach. And it felt like I was always trying to fill it with food, with alcohol, with men, with achievement, with success, with money, with stuff, with everything. And no matter what I did, it would never stay full. Talk about, for example, how whether it's achievement and recognition within work or even being thin, that you could have people kind of applauding this or drooling over the fact that you've lost weight. How did you do it? It's so glamorous. You have control over yourself. Mm -hmm. And you can get a high from that initially. But I believe in my own experience that you'll stop believing the people that are applauding you if you don't believe it yourself. You'll stop hearing them at a certain point. So I think a lot of people are obsessed with whether it's the likes these days or waiting for, again, for someone to recognize, acknowledge that if we have a boyfriend that believes in us, we'll finally be able to believe in ourselves. And I don't really buy that theory. Oh, I, I a hundred percent think it is not true. And yes, like everything you just said is, is exactly how it, what the experience was for me. I mean, I, I thought that happiness and fulfillment and success was just a future destination. Yes. And I, I just had to keep working to get there. And it was the next thing, whatever the next thing was. And I would get there and it would feel good for a minute. And then everything would come crashing down and that loneliness and that gaping void in the pit of my stomach was still there. And so on to the next thing I would go. And it just, I got to a place where I call it speeding down the highway of life, trying to go as fast as I could to the next destination, the next destination. And I wasn't present for my life at all. I was always looking for the next thing to make me feel good. And I required more and more and bigger and better and it got to a place where I didn't know who I was. If you asked me, what is your favorite color? I couldn't even tell you. I'd have to look around to see what everybody else said so I could give you my answer that would be acceptable. But did people think of you as being a very independent person? Like, Did they think that you had your own voice? Oh my gosh. I Well, uh, so... <clears throat> From the outside, I absolutely made sure that what you saw was this girl who had it all together, who was happy and bubbly. And I mean, I was the captain of my cheerleading squad in high school. I was, you know, graduated at the very top of my class. I was the president of my sorority. I mm. like I did all the things right, all the things you're supposed to do to make it look like you have it all together. Mm. When on the inside, silently, I had nothing together. I felt like I was just falling apart or was just broken, really is how it felt. So I think everybody saw me as having it all together. But I also think that people saw me as being really tightly wound. Mm. Um, and they saw me as being a control freak. Or, they probably wouldn't say control freak, but they would say like, oh, she's just like, a, she works really hard. She's very driven. She's very type A. Type A, super type A. 
Mm-hmm. And I am very driven. I'm very motivated. And those things are will never go away. But I've learned how to be in life and how to focus on the being before the doing. But before, I had no idea what the being was. It was all about the doing. The doing was who I was. You were talking about how it's always on to the next thing and thinking that you know happiness and fulfillment is out there. It makes me think about how relationships, a lot of us think that the end goal is marriage. <laughs> that once we get there, you know, the panic will subside, we'll feel safe, taken care of, people will stop asking the questions. I mean, I really think that that's like an ultimate one for people. They'll be able to just settle in at that point. When you got to marriage, what was the next thing on your mind in terms of the relationship? Not the career, but okay, you're married now. How are you going to up it after marriage? I agree with what you said. And the only thing I'll add is that I think that people think that the next thing is always the thing, whatever that is. So wherever you are in your life, if it's you're in a relationship, it's that the next thing is you're going to be happy and settled in all of those things when you get married. But for people who are in unhappy marriages, it's like they just can't wait to get divorced. Or, you know, I can't wait until I am pregnant because then all my dreams will be fulfilled. I can't wait until I have this baby because God, then I'm comfortable again. I can't wait till my kids are out of school. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's always some next thing that is going to be that euphoria that we've been searching for and waiting for. So for me, yes, a hundred percent. I mean, I experienced it. It was always the next thing. And so it meant that I was constantly chasing that next high, basically. I mean, I've never done any drugs. So my high was always in approval and appreciation and like belonging. Mm -hmm. And it was always short-lived because then I was always afraid to show people who I really was because I was so afraid of rejection. And my worthiness was completely based on what everybody else saw. So because I wasn't comfortable in my own skin, I couldn't show them who I really was. So it was always conditional. But what I didn't realize is the conditionality was my own love for myself. I loved myself conditionally. Oh my God. Yes. I love that you said this. Sorry. It's just because when <laughs> I had that revelation. It took me years. It like struck me that my own feelings about myself changed so quickly. I didn't change my feelings about others quickly. I was always afraid that they were thinking differently about me. It was going to be one thing. But in fact, it was me that did that to myself. Yeah. We cannot get from another person what we cannot give to ourselves. Mm. So if we only love ourselves skin deep, we will only ever be able to acknowledge, recognize, and receive that same level of love from somebody else. We must go to those depths within ourselves in order to get them from somebody else. And yes, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it, like I didn't know that. Like I didn't realize that the gaping hole in, in my stomach was the fact that I was looking for it to be filled up outside. I thought that if I was going to find the answer that was going to fill it up. And so, you know, surely it's in the food or it's in the men or it's in the success or it's in the whatever it is. It wasn't until I was willing to go into that hole that I realized the hole only existed inside myself because of how I conditionally loved myself. Okay. So what did this look like when you went there? What were your life circumstances at that time? I probably really went into that hole like in the last couple of years, like last year. I got divorced over four years ago now. And when I was married, I thought, you know, it was the panacea for a minute. And then I realized like, oh, I can't sustain being this person because it's not who I really am. And so like my evolution has been what I practice and teach is called the art of undoing. And I've been continually undoing layers for the last six years or so. And so for me, the getting to those really deep layers of this gaping hole really came in the last couple of years. This is sad and um, empowering at the same time. As I mentioned, I have journaled most of my life. And for some reason, like a year and a half ago, 
or so, two years ago, maybe, I was writing in my journal about a guy that I was dating and how he was basically throwing me emotional breadcrumbs and I was following after them. And this is after I had been divorced. This is after I had you know, gone through a couple of other short-term relationships. And I started looking back through old journals and I found, I'm not joking you, the exact same sentence that I had written about this man I was dating at 37 as the man I dated when I was 18. I'm not joking, exactly the same sentence. And it was in that moment that I realized, I don't believe I'm worthy of anything more. It is me who is restricting my own love of myself and looking for it in somebody else and being willing to follow after these emotional breadcrumbs because I don't think I deserve anything better than that. And I've been doing it for the last 20 years. And it was hard to let go of it. It is so scary because when you walk away from this thing that feels okay, because it's some sort of gratification, it's some sort of acceptance and be willing to stand on your own where you think you're going to fall into that pit. For me, I felt like I was going to fall into the pit and never come out. I was going to get swallowed. And I didn't. Instead, I discovered that's where I was. Mm. Now, were you able to trace back where this came from, this feeling like you weren't worth anything, or do you think you were just born with this? It's interesting that you asked that question because I'm currently writing a book and was just trying to trace it back this weekend. The first memory I have of learning what good girls look like and how to be accepted was when I was five. I found um, a pornography magazine and... I was very curious about it and ashamed of it all at the same time and ashamed of being curious about it. Um, And so in that experience, which it took me like probably until the last couple of years to even be willing to say out loud because I was so ashamed of it. I thought I was such a dirty person and disgusting and horrible and shameful, not even being able to see that it was a five-year-old, like what else would I expect? But I learned in that moment that desirable women are both sexy and skinny and have perfect bodies and that sex is disgusting. From there, everything became conditional. If I have this, then I am acceptable. If I don't do this, then I am not acceptable. You know, I can see how that worked with my overachieving in school. I was much more praised when I came home with perfect grades. I got much more attention when I was popular and had friends and, you know, fit in. So all of those messages that I was getting, I then internalized and they became my inner dialogue. And I call them fear stories because they play constantly. They're like the white noise in the back of our minds. We don't hear them. We just react to them. Mm. And so we're constantly doing things, reacting to those stories that we don't even hear and creating and shaping the lives that we live based on them. And it isn't until we're willing to hear them and bring them to the surface and intentionally move through them that we can finally get past them. Mm. Have you ever spoken to any men about the first time they saw like a porn magazine and, and their experience and, and what they felt seeing it? I haven't actually. I mean, honestly, like this was the thing I was so ashamed of for so long. Like, I mean, I'm a heterosexual and my sexuality has been this thing that has been so hard for me to like embrace because of that experience I had at five years old. So this is actually probably the first time I've talked about it. <laughs> out loud like this. <laughs> you never really spoke to your parents. Did you blame them? I'm assuming that it was your parents. Maybe it wasn't. Did you blame whoever had this magazine in your mind over time? I think I blamed myself. I mean... For being curious enough to look? Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't just a, a one-time thing. It was like, because I was curious and I was like, this is interesting. I've never seen anything like this. I had no idea. And so, you know, over time I would go and try to seek out these magazines and the story that I created from that is that I was disgusting. 
who could I be to be such a disgusting little girl to want to look at that stuff? And at the same time, the image was you know, burned into my brain that to be desirable, you must look like this. So when I was 16 years old, I got a nose job. Yeah, me too. I got liposuction. After children, I got a job. Like I've been anorexic. I have been bulimic for a lot of years. I was bulimic. So it's like I kept trying to do everything I could to make myself into the look that represented what I thought was desirable. Mm. And at the same time, being the person I thought was desirable, which meant I had to hide so much of these like, you know, oddities or things that I thought were weird or awkward or whatever, the places that didn't feel like they fit into that image. Yeah, because it's so kind of confusing and where you can like overwork yourself. I've never like said this, so this might come out jarbles, but in one sense, you could like see a model that look, right? And say, I have to look like that, but then be like, I don't want to be like that though. Like, I don't want to be the model. I have to have more brains than that. So then you think of some high powered woman with a job or something and you're like, I'm going to do what she does, but I'm going to look like the model. Exactly. So it's like you're picking from everywhere. It's not like you have one role model and you're like, I'm going to emulate that. It's never enough just in whatever you see in one person. You're just going to take this from them, that from the other person. For the fact that you've never said that and you were afraid it was going to come out garbled, it sounded perfect because you're exactly right. For me, that was the experience. I've probably maybe said this once, so same as what you just said about being garbled. We talk about on social media that you know social media is so distorted because it's everybody's highlight reel. But in reality, we're doing that in our heads all the time anyway. We're looking at everybody else's highlight reels of what we see of their lives. And whether it's on social media or otherwise, you're absolutely right. I'm looking at the model. When I was in high school, I cut out Victoria's Secret magazine pictures and pasted them on my mirror along with the message, eat to live, not live to eat. I was 13 years old and weighed less than 100 pounds mm. because I thought that's what I needed to look like. Like. And at the same time, to your point, I needed to be smart because that's what my dad loved. Mm. And I needed to be, you know, well spoken and I absolutely needed to be kind and respectful and a hard worker and be driven and motivated. So I needed to be all of these things and I better not fall on any one of them because then I would be unlovable. Remember spending so much time looking in the mirror and just being disgusted, you know, and feeling like I was held back by myself. When I was young, I was a model, and I remember feeling like I had this freedom that other kids my age didn't have. Like I wasn't obsessed about my looks. I didn't have to worry about dieting. I just had it. And I had it in a very different way. I looked like a boy. So like, I just want to put that out there. (laughs) I wasn't Victoria's Secret model. I looked like a boy, and I was discovered that way. But I always felt like um, I got something really easily that other people didn't get. And then after I took birth control, I gained all this weight. And it was just like I became this hideous person. And the hideous person was the relatable person. It was actually someone that's very much like everyone else that struggles and thinks about my weight. And it's just crazy thinking back and, and you bring up the, you know, looking in the mirror. And I think this is maybe why you also want to help people do something quicker than you were able to, because I thought it was the only way that I could forgive myself for all the minutes, which came into hours and days of my life that I spent holding myself back and thinking if I just return to this starved version, like, you know, under a hundred pounds that I would have this freedom in life, that I could just leave that self-consciousness and the beauty stuff behind. I thought if I looked like the model, I could stop thinking like the model. Wow. Yes. Um, First, 
I believe that you did not look like a boy, that you were absolutely beautiful and no matter what, and that you were always beautiful. And it is, you're, you're so right. The suffering exists in our minds. Yeah. I mean, yes, like I'm, I'm reading a book right now that talks about the lies that we're told and, you know, how the patriarchy has like made women subservient and all that stuff. And I don't disagree with those things in that you can sort of see how that has been created. And at the same time, I really find that that's very disempowering because when we're blaming out there, we're not taking responsibility for what we can change, which is only in here, in each of us, inside our heads. So what we hear in our heads is what we see with our eyes. And so you were probably always beautiful, whether you looked, as you said, fat and disgusting, I think. I'm trying to use your words because I doubt very seriously that was true at all. Or like a boy, you were absolutely gorgeous. And we are so much more than that. But all we see is what we hear in our heads. We just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. It was the workhorses in high school or something that just got people to go around and talk about the narrative they tell themselves. This is why I do it now. I mean, honestly, I, I believe that my mission is to help people hear their stories by telling mine. Mm. Because I want people to have permission to go to that place of being vulnerable and not having all the answers and being afraid. Because it is, it's scary. The Part of the reason that my work is called The Art of Undoing is because in order to undo the limiting beliefs, we have to undo, like stop doing the patterns that we keep reacting to. And when we're going through that, when we stop those patterns, which we have developed as a way to protect ourselves and distract ourselves and soothe ourselves and numb ourselves and all the other stuff that we're doing to make ourselves worthy and feel okay, it feels like we're being undone. It feels hard. It's scary to walk away from what you know. I say, let go of good in order to go after great when there's literally no guarantee that it's going to be great. Right. So part of the reason that I share my stories is because I want people to know that it's worth it. And great really does exist, but it does not exist in our minds. It exists in a much deeper place. I also think the people in life, and you're probably one of them, that has experienced shame, but is willing to talk about the shame and not feel ashamed for talking about it, the stories of shame, mm-hmm. you know, the narratives of shame, but then being able to be the person without shame talking about your shame. Yeah. You know, yes. Um, I just was thinking about this the other day because, you know, vulnerability and shame, especially with Brene Brown, who I absolutely love, has become much more commonplace, at least in the circles that I run with. And people talk a lot about how do we trust ourselves in order to be vulnerable? And I absolutely believe, you know, that you can't just like tell everybody everything that's not vulnerability. That's manipulation, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. But um, is we have to trust ourselves. If I need you to respond in a certain way to my story, that's manipulation. If I trust myself to be okay, no matter how you react, that's vulnerability. I love that. I think about it in terms of the people that might be listening that think about dating yes. and you know, just put themselves out there. And I'm really big on initiating an experience. Like I'm not about having to wait for someone to approach me. And in a lot of ways, it's because I held myself back so much of my life. So I want to keep my life moving. I I, I want to lead my life. I don't want to put myself on pause for anyone. But with that comes, it's vulnerable. It's just making me think. If I can reach out to someone and suggest something that we do, and it's okay if I don't hear back or if they say no, that's vulnerability. But try to word it in a certain way or, you know, like it's like a chess game, that's manipulation or getting upset with them and angry with them if I don't hear back. 
yeah, I guess that's, that's mm-hmm. not vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that I really came face to face with that this summer because I was telling myself like I was dating this guy who totally broke my heart. And I thought I'm being brave. I'm being vulnerable. I'm telling you all the things. Mm. But what I realized I was doing was being manipulative. Not intentionally. It's not like I was, you know. Yeah, explain this. You have to break this down. So what was going on? What were you doing? Um, so we were going through some things. He lived in a different country because that's also a pattern of mine is that I tend to find guys that are not actually local to me. By the way, that's been my whole life. Uh, Mine too. Most of the guys I've dated, especially after getting divorced, I I don't think I've dated a single guy that's been local. This one is from a totally different continent. So I've done that a few times. Anyway, this one I was very serious with and I was so proud of myself because this was the first time, again, like, mind you, this is, I'm not talking about like distant history. This was this summer. So like six months yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, and I've been teaching this stuff for a while. I was so proud of myself. I felt like I finally had broken this pattern of the emotional breadcrumbs and the emotionally unavailable men that I had been dating for the last 20 years after that discovery I mentioned earlier. And I was sharing things with him about how I was afraid because part of my story is that I must be strong. I must be hard and I must have everything figured out. To not have everything figured out and to not be strong means I'm being weak. So I was trying really hard to let myself be in that place of saying, I don't know, and I'm a little bit scared and whatever. And when I did that, I thought I was being vulnerable. And I was saying that I'm being vulnerable. What I realized was the energy that I was using in those conversations was very much make me feel better. Mm. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me that this is okay for me to be telling you this right now, which meant that's manipulation. Whoa. Because it's a big word. Manipulation, most people would not want to put that on themselves unless they were told they were being manipulative. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it, yeah, it's again, it's not like I was trying to manipulate, but vulnerability is being able to be in a space and be okay with whatever happens. Yes. And I wasn't. I wasn't okay when he didn't tell me everything was okay. I needed him to respond in a certain way. When we are holding on to some idea of how things need to go, when we are resisting how things are really going, that is some form of manipulation. Again, it's not overt, it's covert. One of my biggest and hardest journeys um, or lessons that I've learned throughout this journey is letting go and surrendering to what is. And that is vulnerability. But we have to trust ourselves in order to do that. And it feels like a nasty plunge into the unknown and it's really scary Talk to me about letting go and surrendering to what is and how your relationship with your husband at the time that you knew you were going to divorce, living together 18 months, sounds like people that are in quarantine that have decided they're going to break up and they're still coexisting. Talk to me about how you had to surrender to the fact that it was over and still live with him and not fall back in love, not try to get him back or him get you back. Well, we definitely went through a lot of like, do we do this? Do we not do this? And for me, When I made the decision that I just couldn't keep living the way we were living and the way we were living was that we were basically coexisting, it was never going to be that bad, but it was never going to be great. And I could see down that path and I could see what would happen and I could see that it was just going to be more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that for my life. Kind of like what you said earlier with dating because of an experience I had when my daughter was, my second daughter was three months old. I really had come to this place of not wanting to wait for my life to start anymore and not waiting for that next thing to happen when things would finally be okay and rather taking control back for myself. And so when we decided to separate my children were one and a half and three at the time, mm. I think less than that, maybe. 
so obviously they were so young and I did not want to screw them up because my experience was that when I was little, um, I had to testify my parents' divorce in front of them, go into court and stand in front of them and it, what felt like choose between them. And I didn't want to do that to my children. And so, you know, even though obviously they were a lot younger, I wanted to have a place where we could all be happy. And I knew that that was never going to happen if we were married. It was going to be a toxic environment for my children. And I, and I could see that that was just going to, I didn't want them to have a model of marriage that they would emulate when they got older based on what my husband and I had. At the same time, I also did not want to uh, have us, you know, hate each other and fight and have a horrible divorce like what I experienced. And so I worked very, very hard for us, we both did, to be in a place of learning how to be around each other mm. without having to have expectations from one another. Wow. And the way that we did it, and I would say it started with me, he might say it started with him, is that we worked very hard to drop our egos. It was no longer about fighting to be right, but rather thriving for the future. And it was hard, but it worked. <laughs> How did you not fool yourself though into thinking, okay, we're learning how to drop our egos. We're not having expectations. Maybe we can do this within our marriage and that will change the marriage. Oh my gosh. I have like an entire journal of those questions for myself. And what I'll say is for me, the more deeply I went into myself, the more I knew that that was never going to be true, mm. that that was just a convenient distraction right. versus a deeper truth. Whoa. Yes. And it was hard. Like, the, I mean, again, I, my, I think I've painted the, an accurate picture that like my life was based completely on what everybody else thought. Like I became the person I was supposed to be. So this was the first time in my life where I really stood for myself, where I really said, I'm not going to choose this anymore. Mm. And it was scary and it was hard. And I can't even begin to tell you the number of tears I cried or the number of questions I asked myself. But the, when I tuned in deeply to myself, deeply to what I could find my truth to be, I knew, I knew that this was not the right thing for me to do mm. or that it was like to stay in the marriage was not the right thing for me to do, that leaving was the right thing. And I'll say, I mean, I like him so much more than I did through a good half of our marriage. Like we're friends now. We don't, you know, swap dating advice or any of that kind of stuff, but he celebrates Christmas with us. My dog, my dog that I got like this last year is over at his house right now. She goes over, spends the night at his house. <laughs> so we, you know, we get along. You guys laugh um, together. We do. We can laugh together. Mm. And, and the reason we can is because I don't have expectations from him. I can walk away from him so I can give myself permission to love him without having to like him. Mm. Or like him so much without following Without him. being in love with him. Yeah. I can love him for who he is without being disappointed for who he's not. Oh, yes. You know how like so much of trying to be a certain person is about... Yeah, the people pleasing. And so much that will prevent us from making decisions for ourselves is we fear the reactions. What was the reaction from people, your parents, your friends, when they found out you're getting out of this marriage? And also, you know, you left a job. Were the reactions that bad? Were people crying? Were people asking all the questions? How was it? With the divorce, 
I was really ashamed at first because I felt like a failure, which is the thing that I had avoided my entire life. I mean, that was where all the overachieving came from is like, I'm running toward achievement and I'm basically one step ahead of failure. And so to like (laughs) end a marriage felt like such a failure. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I knew deeply that it wasn't and that I was actually successfully choosing myself in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I learned very quickly when I did start telling people is that every person had advice and every person's advice was always the same. I should say not every single person, like this is outside of my very trusted circle. It was always kick him out. Why hasn't he left yet? Why haven't you gotten a lawyer? Protect yourself. You have little kids to think about. I hope you're getting child support. What's the alimony situation? I mean, over and over and over. And it was just like every other divorce. And I, I couldn't do that again to my children the way it had been done to me. Like, yes, everybody's reaction consistently was that outside of like my sister, my best friends, and my parents. But they weren't disappointed with you. They ended up just hating him. They hated him. They hated him. Uh, And yeah. And so if I listened to it, I hated him. It made my energy super negative. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to whatever. And then I realized that's not going to get me anywhere. And that's where the dropping the ego came in was I had to like, stop listening to that stuff. And so I stopped taking anybody else's advice. So the biggest advice I give to people now is don't listen to anybody's advice. (laughs) I know. God, which is so hard. It is. Well, no, no. I mean, it's hard because not hard not to listen to other people. It's like, I think about the advice column I had. So I'm thinking, no, I don't want that. I want people to still come to me. Totally. Well, again, I just said like, my advice is don't listen to anybody's advice. So I'm like, you know, I will have something. Yeah. I need you to talk about just for a second that hating him and he's the monster. He's made you leave the marriage. And we hear about affairs that men have right? And that they had this double life. You look at them, they led, how could they were a different person? Tell me though, you felt like you had been putting on a mask, a face, even in this marriage, and you wanted to go back to the real you. Was there a sense that you had lived a double life? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I got separated in September at Christmas. My sister gave me a book And it was Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. And I had never heard of it before. And when she gave it to me, I literally wanted to throw it in her face and punch her because I was like, what in the world? Why in the world would you give me this book? Return to Love? Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I just got separated. (laughs) Then I started reading the book. It's definitely not at all what I thought it was going to be. Instead about returning to loving ourselves. And there's a particular section in the book. Have you read it before? I've never finished it. Okay. I can do so, that in quarantine now. Yeah. Yes, you should. You should. Uh-huh. I mean, it, you know, there, it's one that you can kind of like do sections of. But anyway, there's a particular section of the book where she's talking about relationships and how we have to take responsibility for our part in creating the situation and the experience that we're in. And before that point, I think I was like super blaming him. He was the monster and all the other stuff that everybody else was saying, how I need to protect myself. And then when she said this, and the way that she talks about it is like, you know, even if it's 10%, even if of the 100% of the bad experience you're having, you can only take 10%. What is your 10%? What can you learn from it so that you don't do that again? And that was miraculous for me because it made me start getting really honest that I had become a different person. I don't think I really realized it until that point. And I had, I had changed the rules of the game for him. So, you know, when I started shifting back into being the person who I really was at some point in the marriage, he was no longer married to the person he thought he married. Totally. And so I had to take responsibility that that was on me. And I couldn't be mad at him for that 
I just had to own that and know that that was the person that I wanted to be and continue to lean into that. And that's what meant that I could never be in the marriage because he didn't marry that person. Mm. Thank you, Marianne. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know how as a mom, I mean, imagine thinking that I don't want to burden my children with problems. That's why I want to be a perfect mom that's happy and all this stuff. How do you think these quote unquote problems that you've experienced in your life will benefit your children and will make you stand out as a mom? We all have problems. That's part of the human condition and the human experience. And so if I try to teach my children that we don't have problems, then they're in for a rude awakening as they get older. And I would much rather teach them resilience and how to have fear and have problems without letting the fear or the problems have them. Oh. And and the thing that for me, well, I got divorced in part because of my kids. I mean, I got divorced because I wanted to choose me, but I knew that in doing so, I was choosing my children as well because I was teaching them that they didn't have to choose between their happiness and somebody else's. And same thing, I left Google after 12 years You know, when basically nobody would do the crazy thing that I did as a single mom with no financial support and all the other stuff, in part because of my children, because I wanted my children to realize that they don't have to choose between their dreams and their money. Mm, God. I want my children to live in full range. I want for them to to believe in their dreams and to dream really damn big, excuse my language. And I can only give that to them if I give it to myself. Yeah, I think about how, you know, a lot of mothers will stay in a marriage because they think that's the best thing for their child. And growing up, I thought that my parents getting divorced would absolutely kill me. Or I told them I'd kill myself if they did it. And I realized that, you know, watching a mother just sink in her bed and give up on her dreams is probably a worse image for a child or for a a young woman that's becoming herself than if her mother had left the marriage. I can only speak to my own experiences, and I absolutely believe that to be true. I believe that we all have the responsibility to live our lives fully so that we give other people permission to do the same. Because when we do not live our lives fully, we're not just hurting ourselves. We're hurting all those people who could benefit from the gifts that we have that we are not sharing. I believe that it is not just our right, it is our responsibility to share our gifts because each of us has gifts that could change the world. Mm -hmm. And if we're not sharing them, then the world loses out. I do feel like there's so much weight to that. Feeling like you have something and... You can prevent yourself because you feel like it is such a responsibility to share it. I think Marianne Williamson also has a quote about that, right? About what is it like? Our greatest fear. Yes. Something like it's not how small you are, but how big you are or something. I've totally butchered that, but yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason I say it the way I say it is not certainly by any means to make anybody feel overwhelmed by the pressure of the responsibility, but to realize that we should be giving ourselves permission to dream big and to go after them because not dreaming big isn't helping anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think always knowing that you have this voice inside of you that's urging you towards something and not doing it just makes you smaller and smaller over time as you know that you're not, you know, betting on yourself. And I think that, you know, maybe we all think that everyone has the same dream. What I've realized is we don't, you know, so the one that we hear inside of us is very different. And just believing that it's there for a reason and it's ours and choosing to follow and explore it is important. 
What's so interesting about what you just said is you're absolutely right. I think everybody believes that they have the same dream and that everybody believes they are alone in their fear. Mm. And I think that the more that we are willing to explore our dreams and talk about our fears, the more we can start to see the uniqueness is in our dreams and not our fears. We all share the same fears, generally. Universal. Yes. And I believe that for most of us at the deepest level, it's that we are not enough. And you know, it manifests itself in different forms, in different ways, in patterns that we repeat and depending on what the context is. But the more that we are willing to face those and again, be vulnerable to them and explore them, the more that we can have them without them having us so that we can get to that place of knowing what our dreams are and going after them. I coined the word break upward and I'm curious what it might mean to you. I think everything for me is about upward. Mm. I think the way I look at it is every experience I have, if I am willing to look at it this way, can teach me lessons that enable me to grow and evolve and transform. And all of that for me is upward. Tell my audience where they can find you. My website is the best way to go deeper with me, and that is ericagertis.com. I have a great downloadable guide that can help you get to deeper sense of clarity and happiness very quickly, which I think is just a super, super great activity. And I also have a bunch of articles and things like that. And of course, they can reach me on social media. I do a lot of live streams and engagement with the audience. They can find me across all the channels. I don't want to stop talking to you. I, had, I just have to say that it's such an honor when people get pitched to me. You know, I love that. It's like, wow, how did that happen? How are these mm-hmm. books coming to my doorstep? You know, but the fact that I found you and you said yes is a blessing. Like, I just, I love that I found you and I love that you said yes. I have loved speaking to you. Thank you so much for being receptive. And I feel like it's a privilege for you just to take a chance to come on here and share your time with me. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for finding me and inviting me. And this was such an honor and pleasure for me as well. So thank you for the opportunity. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.